You know yeah. what? I'll have a I'll have a, a mojito with you. Okay, a mojito. With a live microphone, Matt walks away limping like an old man to go get a mojito. No, it's not. It's the next best thing. It's a white claw. Welcome to Ranking 76, where we review and rank the heroes and villains of the American West. I am Eric. I'm Matt. And we've passed the Whitmans, and we're sticking in the Pacific Northwest, because it wasn't depressing enough before. You know, I was just about to bring that up, how depressing I even re, uh, while I was editing and going back, I'm like, oof. And then there was a moment at the end where we're all just like super like, yeah, so that's it. Okay. Should we rank? I guess. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of a bummer. Uh, but Narcissa and Marcus still dead. They're not any more alive. So now we need to kind of fast forward. Uh, actually, this kind of picks it up. Uh, but we're going to be spending most of the time in the 1870s today. Because today we're talking about Chief Joseph. And I'm going to be mean to Matt because... I had to practice uh, Chief Joseph's anglicized name or a native name a lot. And Matt, why don't you take a look at the chat? Why don't you try to give that a pronunciation? <sighs> oh, you're so close. I'm so proud. It's Himatuyalaktik. 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 Ooh, I like that. Just rolls off the tongue a little bit. The angle, the translation name. One of them is "thunder raising in the mountains." Ooh, that's good. I like real that. good. Like I like it a lot. Now, also, I'm going to show Matt. Basically, it's the cover of the book. One of the books that I used. Uh, I'm going to show him two pictures. They're obviously very important today. One is Joseph. The other is a man named Oliver Otis Howard. Matt, why don't you just give them an old description there? One looks like the typical white male back in the times. Big beard, scraggy, shaggy hair. Ooh, Chief Joseph. Good looking dude. Got a couple braids. Looks PO'd like usual. No smile. It's a very stoic, man. Were they... Were those two, well, I'm sure we'll, you'll say your catchphrase, but um, were they like partners or enemies? They weren't partners. <laughs> okay. What's the name of the book? The World's Greatest Rivalry. Uh, no, uh, Thunder in the Mountains. They just oh. took his name. Yeah. You know. Okay. It's very good, by the way. Like, this is up there with uh, one of the, my favorite that we've done so far. So, uh, I have told Matt I have written this episode over uh, probably twice we originally were going to do this right after Little Bighorn 
but it needed some work. And then I thought we would latch it onto this. And even in the two weeks since we recorded Narcissa, it, it needed some work again. But I think I'm really happy with what what the end result will be. So hopefully you guys will will agree. But we may as well just get right into it, shall we? Joseph is born with a foot in two worlds on March 3rd, 1840. He is the son of a chief named Tuak. Tuacacus, I've also heard it pronounced Tuacacus, but Tuacacus is what I will go with, so if I'm wrong, I apologize. Tuacacus was taken by the religious fervor of the missions as the leader of none other than Harry Harmon Spaulding. <gasps> Spaulding. He's back. Tuacacus took a Christian name given to him by Spaulding of Joseph. His young son, who will grow up to be Joseph the Younger, because we kind of have to do that little um, balance if we anglicize their names. Uh, his young son was given the name Ephraim. Now, I won't tell you Joseph is the coolest name, but it, it but Ephraim is definitely worse, I think. Really? I like it. Ephraim. Yeah. He sounds like somebody who gets writer's cramp writing a complaint note. <laughs> And here's why we know that this name uh, wasn't great, even for the time period. When Joseph grows up, they essentially forget he was baptized and given an, Amer an anglicized name. So he just gets basically called young Joseph and then eventually Joseph. But to keep it, you know, separated to a caucus to two caucus and Joseph, I'm just going to separate them. So two caucus is, you know, his father. Then you have Joseph. They also have a younger son. Joseph has a younger, uh, sorry, a younger brother named Olicott. Both of them are going to be groomed to be leaders. Joseph will be more of like your traditional chief, and Olicott will be more war leader. But they're very, that's like right away they start training for that. Now we're up to the point at the end of the Whitman's episode because in November 1847, the Cayuses rise up to kill the Whitmans and then take 47 prisoners. It is important to note the Cayuses are the ones that killed the Whitmans and captured. They're still part of the Nez Perce, like that whole band, but it's not to a caucuses or future Joseph's tribe. How old was he at this time? He would have been seven, okay. seven or eight. Okay, Young so man. he wouldn't even been part of the big party anyways no um, they wouldn't have took him along to to do all that anyways i mean i know i know it wasn't his tribe but i'm just saying right he would have been a little bit too young he would have heard about it though it would have been obviously a big deal now we talked about how spaulding at the time was pretty lucky because if he was with the whitmans uh instead of at his cabin he would or at his mission, he would have absolutely been murdered just with the Whitmans. But Spalding, if you remember, dealt more with the Ness purse. And in fact, if it wasn't for a Catholic priest, uh, chances are the Cayuses would have found out Spalding. But a Catholic priest actually told him, like, maybe you should just go far away very quickly because there's a large group of natives <laughs> hunting run! missionaries. Yes, basically run. Um, I have not made that episode on Spalding, but I'm very, we might just drop it as a bonus episode randomly 
because it's interesting. It, it's worth talking about, but we have a lot to cover today, so I don't want to get into that. After the murder of the Whitmans, Congress really takes a bigger interest in the area. Now, they have always had interest, but anytime, and I think we've seen this before, anytime that uh, tragedy happens in an area, that does give more of a rallying cry to take control of the area. And then, especially during this time, James Polk didn't need much of a reason to go into a country, just ask Mexico. So there's definitely a doubled effort to go populate the area. Meanwhile, the Nez Perce are trying not to turn this into an all-out war for the territory. There are still over 40 hostages that the Cayuse have that they're essentially using them as a bargaining trip so this doesn't turn into an all-out war. The Nez Perce basically know where they are and who took them. Are they are they are they holding them hostage for like a specific goal or is it they went in there, killed the Whitmans, took everyone else and they're just figuring it out as they go? They were figure they were improvising on the fly. Okay. They took the 40 and now this is really the only leverage they have left. Now it's a it's a very tight rope they're walking because the army can just come in and massacre them all and they would you know, for the most part, be justified and looked at as heroes as they were be and during as it would be viewed at the time. But the um, the Americans don't want to have just an all out war if they can end this peaceably because they're still holding on to this notion that they're treating natives fairly, even when they do something terrible like massacre a mission, right? The two tribes are divided when they probably need to start gearing up for a potential war with the Americans, but it's difficult when the tribes try to hide those who committed the massacre. The Americans knew the tribes were hiding them, and they would just need to see justice would need to be served. Small fights break out, but President Polk takes control and claims federal jurisdiction over the area, and the tribes are forced to give up the five men, including Telokaiti, uh, who led the the massacre we talked about him last episode the five are quickly hauled to trial and found guilty in june 1850 a marshal led the five cayuses to the gallows that were erected in the streets of oregon city placed under hoods of their heads five nooses were wrapped around their necks and they were hanged in mass in front of a crowd of spectators the last of them died after 15 minutes at the end of the rope. At least one of the deaths, one of the men, before the trap door swung open, called out something that could be loosely translated. At least now our people can be friends. This weighed heavily, not only on the five condemned men, but on the tribes themselves. Do you think... I believe this is the second time we've been talking about Native Americans that took forever to like die from like hanging. Uh, you they do that on horn. Okay. Never mind. Well, what was your question? <laughs> I was just going to say, do you think they were doing it on purpose? Like, because I thought it was the no. The, I mean, the, hanging being itself, so high up was supposed to be like neck break, die instantly. There's definitely a skill involved because if you overestimated the drop. And they drop too far, it would it would decapitate them, and then it would be even more horrifying to see. Right. If you 
didn't have enough of a drop, it would basically strangle them to death. But I mean, being, I mean, if I was the person being hung, I'd rather have my head ripped off than sit there for 30 minutes freaking choking. Yeah, but Matt, you're being selfish as the person being hung. The people watching you being hanged would see your head pop off your shoulders. <laughs> I know. What happened to the, remember, um, oh my God, this is way back. It's like the first couple episodes. Who was it where they were testing out the water? Like they came up with a new way. It was like that was water. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. I'm about to say, there's been one very specific hanging we've gotten into in detail, and it was Tom Hart. So I assume that's what you're talking about, but we haven't. Did it take uh, him a long time? Yeah, it was like 15, 18 minutes, something like yeah, that. Yeah, never mind. Never mind. It was still brutal. Don't get me wrong. Hanging is not the best way to die, but it can be instant if they time it right. But also, you have five men up there. You have to know the weight of their body. Like, you, you got to take right. a body Because it's, it's all at the same time, right? Yeah. And then, so, the Native Americans wanted peace moving forward. Right. I mean, probably what... What that little bird probably doesn't uh, talk about enough is how much weight those five men put on themselves as far as like they felt like they were dividing the tribes, which effectively they were. Obviously, you can't get away with murdering and massacring a group of people and then holding 40 captives without dividing. But they definitely felt the weight of their decision as they were dying and they were hoping that as they were dying, that now they're the Pacific uh, natives and American could start becoming friends again and allies again. Because you got to remember, too, we joked last episode that Spalding was just converting as many natives as he possibly can. Some just kept up with it. They they became uh, Americanized, I guess, for lack of a better term, like they adapted to a settlement way of life like we talked about a little bit earlier. Right. So that is the end of the Whitman saga. But just know it made James Polk enter the area probably a little bit more than a little bit sooner than he anticipated. This is probably where I should say this episode can get really name heavy. So I've tried to introduce people who are crucial to the story and I've tried to leave out those who weren't. So if you're wondering why I only say the warrior versus very specific people, because this this there's a lot of people that are involved in this and it was very difficult to, to judge. So hopefully this all stays straight. Moving on, since 1850, white settlers have been granted lands throughout Aragon, Oregon territory without any release of title to the prior inhabitants, a.k.a the native Americans living in the area. What is more, the most desirable properties on the prairies along the rivers, those were most needed by the tribes to survive. Quick combats quickly occurred and they resulted in fatalities. Enter newly appointed territorial governor, Isaac Stevens. Stevens was a big picture guy and he wanted the Pacific Northwest to be prepared for the incoming Americans by dividing the territory into districts and assigned Indian agents to the tribal reservations for whom this treaty signed. 
He then would leave the ter- he would left the territory for Washington D.C. to lobby Congress for funds for roads and improvements for the nor- northern route, such as the Continental Railroad. Stevens is essentially preparing the area to get ready for all of these settlers. After Stevens was done lobbying, he returned in December 1854, and he plunged into the organization of treaty councils. His agents had been making the rounds of the villages by selecting individuals that would represent each tribe. And according to historian David M. Burge, quote, not only was the timetable reckless, the whole enterprise was organized in a profound ignorance of Native society, culture, and history. The 20,000-odd Aboriginal inhabitants who were assumed to be in a rapid decline were given a brutal choice. They would either adapt to white society or they could disappear. To understand what happens next, it's important to understand the perceived autonomy that each individual band had. Throughout the Nez Perce homeland, since it had been, uh, since that you can remember, Individual leaders had always regarded their bands as their own nation. They would then gather up with other bands and trade and socialize. Each group considered themselves separate, independent entities and villages among themselves. This is the most important point I can make for the rest of this episode. Every tribe before this that we've talked about has believed themselves to be a separate entity. The Nez Perce believe it as strong as anyone, if not stronger. Every band was self-sufficient, created their own clothing and tools, and got to know their own food and got to make and make their own food on the land. There was no overarching government between the separate tribes, no faraway kings or sheriff to impose laws or collective taxes. The American treaty negotiators did not fully respect such government society to continually look for a one chief capable of speaking on behalf of all Nez Perce. After all, one person shouldn't be able to speak for 56 other tribes. Right. <laughs> yeah, Makes yeah, sense. that's me. That's me. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say that um, some didn't even know some of the other ones. I mean, it's there's a lot out there. Yes. I mean... With traveling and everything. Did they all have their own, like, areas as well? Like, we don't pass this area because that gets into those guys, vice versa? Or did they all just kind of live? There was, I mean, you definitely had your own territory. Now, there was no set line. Or, like, once you pass that tree, that's now Cayuse territory. Right. But, yeah, there was definitely, like, home bases or... Uh, what we're going to talk about is we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Wall- Wallala Valley. That's where Joseph's band is, and that's what they were fighting so hard to keep. Now, there are other native, there are other Nez Perce tribes in the Wallala Valley, but like you all had your own like section of it, I guess. But you're also seasonal. They would also follow the buffalo for hunting. So everyone that was just kind of understood, you know. It's now 1855, and a treaty council was held in the Wallala Valley between Governor Stevens, a superintendent of Indian Affairs named Joel Palmer of of Oregon Territory, and many of the Upper Columbia and Snake River tribes. 
The council opened on May eight, in May 1855 on the bank of Mill Creek and concluded 13 days later on June 11th. Several thousand Indians were present, including Tuakakis, Joseph's father. A chief, named, a chief named Looking Glass, who will become very important next episode, was also there. Just as important, Stevens and the superintendent of Indian Affairs brought detachments of soldiers and a number of white people living in the area as well. <laughs> the ever-present military is making its no, it's making itself known once again. Cue the, like... Um... Essentially, can you imagine just like over your shoulder, just a soldier breathing over you? Now, is this, and you said a little bit at the beginning, the, the, the presence there, though, is mainly because of the deaths and uh, kidnappings. Um, do you think if they wouldn't have done that, it would have been a, a while before like military got involved out there. What no. do you think? No, because what we haven't talked about is gold was discovered in California in 1848. And this is 1950, 1850. Okay. People were coming, which means the soldiers would have to be like these issues that we're going to talk about. were going to happen. Now it escalated a lot because of the gold rush, but also, um, what it so came it down. happened a little bit faster, but not, it wasn't, it was an inevitable thing. Like it, it also, didn't stop. Yes. But also Polk wanted the Pacific Northwest really right. bad. And he, he said he would only run one term and he did. And he checked off every box of his presidency. Like, <laughs> in a brutal way. Here's what I want. Da, 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 and done. I want Mexico. All of it. All, all of, all, all of it, sir. Yeah. Well, what about half? Okay. So yeah, it was, uh, Polk did a lot for the country. However, it's, uh, you can ends justify the means with him. So anyway, we're meeting with all of these bands of, of natives, including to governor Stevens opened up the meeting in the way that we've talked before quote the great father has been for many years caring for his red children across the mountains and there, as he stood pointing east, there has been found that farm, school, shops, and laws that the red men could be protected. Trouble has been made by bad white men. The great father desires to make these arrangements so you can be protected from these men. We are now in council to see if we can arrange the terms which will carry into effect. We're here to protect you. You believe us, right? Right now, we don't quite have the history that we definitely have the history of, uh, like the trail of tears has definitely happened by this point, but we we're still in the 1850s. They're still kind of figuring out that, um, America hasn't quite screwed over every native tribe yet. So he has just a hint of legitimacy, but nobody's really buying it that wants to buy it. During the meeting, according to D. Brown, Tuakakis summed up his people's perspective by saying that no man owned any part of the earth and therefore no man could sell it either. Nearing the end of the conference, he is quoted as saying, quote, 
take your paper away. I will not touch it with my hand. They knew dang well what they were there for, and it wasn't for their protection. It was for the land they were standing on. Not faced, Stephen looked around and saw many other Nez Perces willing to sign his treaty, including a chief named Lawyer, who was well known to the missionaries and fur traders because of his uh, English and negotiating skills. He was also eager to learn the ways of the foreigners. Now, depending on what source you use, Lawyer either thought it was futile to resist the Americans, so you may as well agree, get on it. And then you will get basically the benefit of being first. You will get the the first pick of lands. You will, but, or right. he was kind of lower on the totem pole and wanted to use the Americans to gain power. Both can be true at the same time, but that's what. I can they, see his like uh, reasoning. I mean, no matter what, it's going to happen. So let's be the ones to get there first. Yes. And if you're looking at it as my people versus uh, my, my band will personally benefit from it and your band is going to, to stay away, my people will be better off, but we're all going to be at the same anyway. Like you can see that if he's thinking as an individual nation. Right. And he might have been thinking as an individual nation. However, Stevens was like, that sounds good. How many people do you want to speak for? All of them? wonderful oh no (laughs) so he did say yep you're speaking for everybody he basically pointed at lawyer and said you seem like a swell chap why don't (laughs) you sign for everyone or speak for everyone he kind of made him a lead negotiator chief if that makes sense enough nez purse and other native leaders signed the signed the treaty to appease the Americans. The deal, as it appeared on the map, looked to be a fairly good deal for Americans. Yes, they would have to go on the reservation, but they still had a large majority of the land. So we're talking Idaho, like this is areas like Idaho, some Oregon, but a lot of, uh, a fair amount of Montana as well. They kept the large portion of their homeland in the area that was constantly filling with Americans. And there was still plenty of room for Americans to spread their legs. It was a wide open territory. It's going to be years before we have to deal with this anyway. Yes, they, I don't, what I don't know is how clear that the Nez Perce understood how many Americans were coming across to find gold in California versus how many just wanted to stay in the area. That I'm not entirely sure of, and I also don't believe the Americans had a great incentive to say that part out loud. When um, they found gold, like, did the natives realize what they were doing and, like, try and get in on that? Or did any of, like, natives be like, ooh, gold, or not really? Well, keep in mind, they were more trade goods, mm-hmm. trade good for good, let alone right. not necessarily look at the the value of the metal. So they would, there would be, I mean, this is going back into like, uh, Cabeza de Vaca and like way back in the 1500s for Spanish <laughs> and Mexico with the, uh, with the, not the Aztecs. Um, Oh goodness. I can't remember. But anyway, Montezuma and his people, uh, they would just be wearing gold around because they thought it was shiny and pretty. It took the Spanish to be like, 
looking at them like, what are you doing? Do you not know how valuable this is? Like, it's kind of the same thing. The Gold Rush. We haven't talked about it an awful lot. We've touched on it on like probably three or four episodes. Montezuma was of the Aztec Empire, by the way. Okay, good. I thought I had that right, but I was... I keep like I keep switching them and the Mayans around, and I was very <sighs> nervous to say one of those out loud. So I do the later. No, they're the ones with the calendar. No, I'm just kidding. They are. We should be dead by now. It's borrowed time. <laughs> However, back to the Treaty of 1853. Uh, little did the Nez Perce know it, but it would have been fairly obvious if you could read English that there was a loophole. Not only could settlers claim land but so could their wives. So the same family could essentially claim the same, like double the amount of land. Now, even though the wives and settlers could claim land, settlers and emigrants couldn't officially step foot on the reservation. They could not claim that land. But after the treaty is signed, well, that's not all that enforced. It wasn't long before emigrants start settling on Nez Perce lands and the goods promised in the treaty. So like, again, from the eight, from the Fort Laramie 1868 episode where they were promised as churches and schools and all of the, the things, those things were still promised to them, but they're pretty slow to show up. And then more bad news. Now, keep in mind, this treaty was talked about in 1855. I think I said 1853. I'm very sorry. Uh, this was t- this was agreed upon in 1855. The treaty had not been officially ratified when in 1860 gold is discovered on the proposed reservation. Violence soon erupts between the miners who are trespassing on Nez Perce land and rather than enforce the treaty that had yet to be ratified, mm, the Americans just decided it's time for another treaty conference. Three years later, they let three years pass of just constant fighting and not kicking out settlers. We'll just go and start killing. And yeah, just just ignore that, you know, we're coming three years later. They're here and they think they get to the. Okay, we're ready to make another deal that hasn't really been ratified, but we're, we're here to make a new deal. Who's willing to trust us? Hey, who's that? Lawyer. Hey, Come buddy. here, bud. Come here, bud. <laughs> Come over here. We have some more talking to do. Uh, lawyer assumed the position in the 1863 treaty between the Nespers and the Americans as the head chief. And I put that in heavy quotes. Lawyer was essentially willing to give Americans most of what they wanted. And again, depending on your source, lawyer was very divisive. He was kind of self-preservation. One of those voices still opposing was Joseph's father, Tuakakis, who at this point is getting on in years and is preparing Joseph to take over as chief. Tuakakis began to instruct the young men, or his, his son, that when dealing with the Americans to quote, never accept any gifts or they will say you have sold something. Take no pay, sign no paper. Do not even touch a white man's paper with your hand or they will say you have agreed to what it contains. 
the bands that lived outside the proposed reservation boundaries walked out of the proceedings and refused to endorse the treaty. Now you might ask what was so wrong, what was so bad about the treaty that a second treaty that hadn't been enforced really for the Nez Perce from eight years earlier? Uh, well, because the government wanted to take 90% of the reservation away. Hey, we made this reservation for you. Oh, we're also taking 90% of it. Yeah. Fast oh, forward. Oh, eight I, years. I, I, yeah, you move the you move the page, you know, it's like the the um see-through page where you just throw it back over on top of the map and it's like American land. <laughs> just leaves them a little cut out. You know, I'm not saying that didn't happen, but I could see it. <laughs> Can you imagine? To have the balls to go up, hey, do you know that treaty we signed eight years ago that has just flamed and bombed? How about we do that again? But this time, 90% of where you live is now gone. <laughs> we, we're we going to try that again, but only we take more from you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what do you mean? We couldn't keep settlers and miners off your land before? Well, now there's significantly less land. We got to be able to keep them off now, right? Right? <sighs> right? We never learned, yeah. Well, I guess both sides never. Well, I mean, it's nothing the Native Americans could do anyways. Because regardless if they signed it or not, it was still happening. Well, also, we'll, we're going to get into this in just a little bit, but I can't help myself. The natives are obviously in a lose-lose situation. They are supposedly a sovereign nation. This is why they're making a treaty with them. And they're not just claiming, I don't think public domain matters at this point or even exists yet. But you are dealing with them as a separate nation. You make a treaty with France. You're making a treaty with the Nez Perce. You're not treating this like a traditional citizen-on-citizen -citizen training or a, a deal. If you cannot keep your people, settlers, emigrants, off of reservation treaty land, and you're not going to allow that tribe to defend its land, because let me tell you, when a native kills a white person, that's an even bigger deal. What do they do? There's no win for the Nez Perce. They have to basically hope that the army can keep the settlers off which they fail every time name one time in this podcast where we have said and the army kept these miners out it hasn't happened never I'm pretty angry i'm pretty angry <laughs> he's heated oh i'm heated you will be shocked to know that 51 headmen still signed the treaty, but the rest of the Nez Perce called the 1863 treaty, the thief treaty or the steel treaty. The thief, the thief treaty. Yes. Damn <laughs> Nez Perce. You don't need to be so honest about it. <laughs> now the refusal to sign cause a rifts in the tribe because obviously many did sign many didn't now there's 
there's not a lack of a term for them, but there is a rift between the non-treaty Nez Perce and the treaty bands of the Nez Perce. The treaty Nez Perce moved on to the new reservation's boundaries, while the non-treaty remained on their ancestral homelands, believing that because they did not sign their land away, the treaty did not affect them. After all, the Nez Perce viewed themselves as independent bands, and since they didn't sign, nothing mattered. Tuwekakis demarcated as supposing now, I'm going to say this, I don't take things from Wikipedia an awful lot without good sourcing to back it up, but this was too cool not to put in here. (laughs) Pinch of salt definitely needed. Joseph's father, Tuwekakis, demarcated his Walla Walla land with a series of poles proclaiming, quote, inside this boundary, all people were born. It circles the graves of our fathers and we will use it to give these lands and we will never give up these lands to the graves to any man. Which is pretty awesome. Hell yeah. Now, even again, that's from Wikipedia and also I have a like for people that do not believe in signified distinct boundaries for them to put up distinct poles to say this is our land do not cross it it's a bit of a leap but it's a nice story after the council ended tuikakis again getting up in years fully get, fully getting joseph ready to take the reins tells him Quote, a few more years, the white men will be all around you. You must stop your ears whenever you they, you are asked to sign a treaty selling your home. This country holds your father's body. Never sell the bones of your father and your mother. Which is a strong statement. Tuikakis dies in 1871, and Joseph is now in charge. He is only 31 years old, and he promises his dying father on his deathbed that he would, quote, protect his grave with his life. That Joseph would write that years later. Now, the other person on the cover that Matt described for us is a man that we've already, uh, encountered his name is oliver otis howard matt do you remember where we got oliver otis howard was he in the south for a bit i recognize the name i just can't remember he was the was he the guy that they sent away because he couldn't stop um geronimo close right tribe wait Hmm? I can't remember the name of the guy we did before Geronimo. Cochise. 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 Was he the one that had like uh, kept Cochise's wife and kid prisoner? No, that was Bascom. Oliver Otis Howard uh, was the man that initially made the deal with Cochise. That said that basically he invented the reservation and was like, Oh, you'll just stay here? Yeah, the reservation's here. And then, okay, my job's done. Bye. <laughs> if that jogs your memory. Remember how Cochise really wanted Apache Pass, and Howard was like, okay, we'll just give it to you. That's fine. You're going to stay here, though, right? Cool. Howard had just taken command of the Pacific Northwest about a year ahead of this. Howard 
is a very pious, distinguished veteran who lost his arm during the Civil War. He is known as the Christian general, and he had been the former leader of the Freedmen's Bureau. And again, we last saw him negotiating with Cochise, where he was at least successful in coming to agreement with him, which, if you remember, nobody had been able to do that, let alone track Cochise, but have him agree to agree, agree to a treaty. Now, the aftermath was kind of a farce because we understand that the Apache were definitely not succumbed in the 1860s. <laughs> there was a lot more fighting going on that that led in basically until 1886, if I remember right. But on paper, Howard could claim a victory. In the first meeting between Howard and Joseph, it was professional. The vibe was more business deal than it was pleasantry, pleasantries. Joseph uh, was with 11 other native leaders were curious to meet Howard, and he traveled a long distance over a hard winter between 1874 and 1875. And according to biographer Daniel Sharstein, after a possession of leaders, Joseph finally meets Howard and, quote, stepped close and looked down at Howard, and Howard looked back at Joseph. They stood still, hand in hand, until the time began to stretch. Though Joseph towered over Howard, the general did not feel threatened nor intimidated. The chief's gaze did not strike Howard as an audacious stare. Instead, the general felt something else. It was hard to define. Joseph was showing strength, Howard thought, but also vulnerability. He was trying to open the windows of my heart that day, and that time, and at the same time, endeavoring to read my disposition and my character. Now, I normally don't quote a full paragraph from a book, but I think that's important to see just the kind of presence that Joseph had. He was a big man. He was very stoic. He commanded your attention when he walked into a room. It also turns out Joseph, and we'll go into this in a heavy detail in just a bit, was very eloquent. He was he could bring these long he big complex issues and make them simple, uh, make them simple arguments that was very difficult to counter. So he was a wordsmith. Yes. So he was a warrior of words and a warrior on the battlefield. He wasn't much of a warrior on the battlefield. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) That that is one thing he is not. But as far as quotability, he's up there with Tecumseh. If not, if not. No, don't say it. No. Again. You heard it first, ladies and gentlemen. He, well, and just, I wish you fast forward this episode 20 minutes. Don't do that. <laughs> listen, listen to this first for context, but we have, I quote a lot soon and it's all awesome. <laughs> I nerded out really heavy is what I did. So during the same meeting, again, they're still meeting. Uh, Joseph is towering over Howard. Joseph finally spoke with the briefest conversation. He said, quote, I came to visit my friends among the Cayuses Young chief told me to speak to the agent. That is all. Joseph then replied that there was no word from Washington and that he was glad to see him and that he would shake your hand. Minutes later, Joseph led back, left for the Wallala Valley. 
Over the next couple of years, Joseph holds several conferences with agents of various statures. We will focus mainly on the, his meetings with Howard, but Joseph never budges us from, from his position. And his position is simply, he didn't sign the Treaty of 1863, therefore the immigrants trespassing on his land are trespassing, obviously. Please remove them. That would be great. When he would talk to these agents who would say, will you allow the emigrants onto his land because your people did sign the treaty, Josephs would equate the treaty to as if a white man was approaching him and said, Joseph, I like your horses and I want to buy them. And then when Joseph would being told would tell them, no, my horses suit me. I will not sell them. Then they would turn to the chief's neighbor and pay him for Joseph's horses and then return to Joseph and say, I have bought all of your horses and you must let me have them. The chief would say, we have not sold our lands to the government. This is the way they were bought. Which makes a hell of a point. Your neighbor cannot sell your horses. Anyone can understand that. You hear that lawyer? Yeah, big side eye. <laughs> the irony of him being named lawyer. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> By 1873, Joseph and his band were allowed to stay in the Wallala Valley. But let me tell you, it's just barely. The American position is no longer to allow the Nez Perce to stay on their land. They just don't know how to battle Joseph back in words <laughs> is what it comes down to. That little speech he just gave bought them basically another six months you, and they had to regroup. You, you know what? He's got a point. He's, He's got, got a point. <laughs> he really shouldn't have said that. He really, I'm going to have to take that back him. with me because you're making a lot of sense. I'm starting to question my own beliefs. What's going on? Hold on to that feeling. <laughs> so in 1873, Joseph and his band are allowed to stay in the Wallala Valley through the spring and summer with hints that they would the Americans would come back with a proposal that would allow them to stay on their land. You get the sense that, just like you said, they were like, boy, that does make a lot of sense. I don't know if we can really beat that argument. We need to regroup. However, we're forgetting the other portion of this tragedy, and I say tragedy with half quotes in this. You are forgetting that the poor settlers who just want to go on native land and live, we've forgotten completely about them. And personally, I'm sorry. Because these settlers brought up an odd counter argument they claim that they have a right to own property and it is being infringed on and they were being no they were being treated no better than slaves wow they really said that eh what a bunch of idiots how can you do an audible eye roll strong enough for what that deserves. <laughs> right. Now. That's so dumb. 
Yes. These settlers literally, they have zero, <laughs> like, if we want to take this even like legally, you're on the land illegally. You shouldn't be there to begin with. And instead, the government, instead of just, you know, recognizing that basic truth, uh, the government takes the stance of there's just too many settlers for us to kick off. So we have to kick out the Nez Perce. Listen, listen, there's a few of you. So we're just going to go ahead and say you're the problem. Yeah. Now, issues. Now, what words are one thing. But then issues start to pop up. With the growing frustration, the United States offered to let the Nez Perce settle on their land as farmers and other settlers could still come on the reservation. So now they're really just pushing the land rights. Now, as the Nez Perce, would you believe them? Even if you're going to give individual land plots to individual uh, natives, you have no reason to believe that this is actually what's going to happen. Uh, when have they ever been telling the truth? Right. Even telling, even if you want to say that you want to take the Americans at their face value, if, cause I don't necessarily believe the agents, well, the agents were trying to screw them, but realistically, I think there's a valid point. They cannot probably keep, there's two, there are probably are too many settlers that they're going to move on there anyway. So this is probably the most direct way to solve the problem. The problem is it's bullshit. It's sad and pathetic that this is what it needs to come down to. So, again, the new counter is they're going to allow the Nespers to settle on the land as farmers. You can't roam. You cannot continue to live the way you are. You have to start to be farmers and settle. And obviously, Joseph is like, no, like, (laughs) we're not going to do that. Joseph then asked to speak with the supervisor, which sounds great, but the supervisor in this case was President Grant. And in Joseph's mind, he is the leader of his people. President Grant is the leader of his people. Let's talk it out. Then a neighbor, and I say this with quotes, a neighboring farmer with the Nez Perts, uh, has some horses, some Nez Perce horses walk onto his land and the rancher or the farmer gelds the horses. Basically saying that he did so because he could stop the Nez Perce horses from breeding to, from his horses, from breeding from quote, inferior stock. Gelding for those who don't know, it's castration for the horses. That's so they can stop breeding, if anyone doesn't know that. If I just mansplained someone, something, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Some, someone didn't know that, so hopefully that makes sense now. After the gelding incident, in the spring of 1876, a group of Nez Perce hunters were accused of stealing a horse. Once the group of hunters came in a rancher's horse and wanted to talk the situation out, a skittish rancher shot and killed one member of Joseph's band. Why is there always a skittish guy that kills someone? To be fair, a group of hunters came into your, like, or or outside your house. You would be afraid as well. This does seem like this rancher was just terrified. He flinched, he shot, and he killed a man. I, as much as, like, we want to, like, 
this is there's heavy, not even heavy undertones of racism in this episode. I do try to leave out race as much as possible. I will alter the sayings to say immigrants or Americans to leave out race, but don't get me wrong. There's racist killings and then there's a scared rancher who probably shouldn't be on the land. Let's not forgive him for that. But this doesn't seem like race is an actual motivation for it. I just don't understand why anyone would want to move out there if they're going to be scared. It's free land. And I think like what, I mean, the reason we're going way back here, but the reason, one of the reasons the pilgrims showed, showed up in America is you could own land that wasn't possible in England or very limited. And I don't know about France battle Royale. Uh, one of our Rexy pod brothers, you can tell us if there was a lot of land up for sale, but at this time, I mean, America was unique in the sense that you could own your own land. That was very rare in other countries. So yeah, you went there for the opportunity. It just turns out the opportunity came at the cost of native lands. Up until this point, you could really make this the argument that the tribes and the settlers could actually live with each other side by side. There hasn't been that big of issues outside of the of the uh, Whitman massacre. But even that is we're talking 20, 30 years in the 20 years in the past. It has been relative peace, not to say there hasn't been argument, but violence at least hasn't happened. And then after all, this isn't like the Apache or the Sioux. Joseph's band was largely peaceful, but now that a settler had killed a native, that kind of changes something. Uh, Matt, did you catch what year we're in? 1853? 76. Dang it. Okay, so we're a, a little ways. Do you remember what else happened in 1876? 1876, yes. Um, a war. Little Bighorn. Yes. I was going to say well, that. That happens shortly after the rancher kills the native. Oh, no. Now, what's unique, and where I really start liking Joseph... The aftermath of the murdered Nez Perce gives Joseph an opportunity to argue for his tribe's sovereignty. He had successfully pushed off congressional efforts for his people to stay on his reservation for the last couple of years. But now, since the settler was on Nez Perce land, the tribe should be able to give trial for the crime. He legitimately argued to law. Despite the balance, there was no uprising from his people. And when speaking to those who were defending the rancher, he said, quote, when I saw all the settlers take the murderer's part, I told them there is no law in favor of murder. I could see that they were all in favor of the murderer. So I told them to leave the country. After all, if you're America and you believe in land rights and you believe in law of the land, how can you defend this murderer? And the settlers went, (laughs) Oh no, he's too good. That's a real good argument, Joseph. (laughs) Again, using that argument, he asked for the rancher to be turned over. After all, they were on Nez Perce land. 
and his tribe has sovereignty over his own land. The Nez Perce have sovereignty over the land, which is genius because now he's wrapping it up into land rights also. If you defend this man, you're defending murder and land rights, and you will claim you hate it. Back it up. Now we need to talk about Howard and just kind of how he got here very briefly. So he himself believes that the Nez Perce have a legitimate re like legitimate right to the land. But professionally, Howard's kind of at a tipping point. He was a firm believer in President's Grant's peace policies, whose intentions of the of Grant of the peace policy was to come up with a fair compromise for tribes to leave their land while also giving them the benefit of American society, such as churches, gristmills, schools, all of the things that we've talked about. Howard is a firm believer in it. We also have to keep into, a into account that when Howard ran the Freedmen's Bureau, which the Freedmen's Bureau was some, as part of Reconstruction, it was how do you transition formerly enslaved people into society? He ran that bureau, and he believed that the enslaved people were, were people, which was, again, we fought a war over this. That wasn't the most popular argument, especially in the South, where he had to enforce it. When running the Freedmen's Bureau, he was viewed as too lenient and was too giving to the formerly enslaved people and was ridiculed in the newspaper for it constantly. Some believed that the Freedmen's Bureau was an absolute waste of taxpayer money. So Howard was going to use his opportunity with the Nez Perce that if he could come to an agreement with Joseph and his younger brother, Olicott, who we haven't talked much about, but he's coming in here in a way, not only could Howard save the government money on a potential costly war, he could do it in a humanitarian way and have one of the last holdouts of the reservation system. Now, if you piece that together with the Cochise agreement, that's a really good thing to put on your resume, or like that's a good thing to stamp your legacy on, even if it's not going to hold up during the time. So Howard's motivation is find a peaceful way to make this work. With these motivations in mind, Joseph and Howard don't necessarily have meetings directly, but there are several meetings, especially after Little Bighorn in 1876, because suddenly natives on reservations become a really big deal. And they come to a head in a meeting at the Loapai Reservation in November 1876. Joseph comes in along with several band of, of Nez Perce, and Joseph's position is exactly what we've been talking about. It has not changed since his father said to not sell the, the land that holds your mother and your father, meaning the Wallala Valley. The 1863 treaty had not been signed by his people. Even though many Nez Perce did, this was meant to be the tribe that signed away their land and moved onto the reservation. But because his band did not sign it, they are immune to it. The United States had a less consistent position. Well, less con same position, different argument. 
they eventually wanted all natives to be on reservations. That was the grant peace policy. They would move them onto the reservation and they could look at all of the benefits that the United States government could give you. We will take care of you. We will teach you how to farm. We will show you how to adapt to our society. But Joseph wouldn't even listen to the opening arguments. When asked if he thought the commission was here to cheat him, basically the commission could read the room and looked at Joseph like he's not even really paying attention. So then they asked, well, do you not trust us because you think we're going to cheat you? Joseph recognized the point that they were really trying to make and said that he, quote, did not wish to settle down. Basically saying, we know you want our land and you want us to settle on your reservation. We are not here to do that. When the negotiator asked what he did want, Joseph gave a long speech and claimed that the country was made without lines and without any lines of demarcation, and it was no man's business to divide it. It was no person's power to make a boundary that which has no limits and has no rights to divide that land. This then ended the first day. <laughs> In which you get the sense, the agents or the negotiators just look at each other like, damn, he's good. He's really, really good. We're in trouble. We're in a lot, a lot of trouble. Over the next couple of days, Joseph desperately started to turn the conversation into something he wanted to have her home, which was his tribe's sovereignty. He said, quote, when we heard the white say that they came to settle by the authority of a government officer, our hearts were sick. I think a great deal of my country. I cannot part with it. And with the whites angry became became angry and told me it was not my country. I asked the whites if I have ever called them to my country. For what purpose did they come to my home? Which again, everyone else was like, <laughs> you're right. We did come here ourselves. He never called us here. So Can we shut this guy up. He's making too <laughs> much sense. You get the sense. Like, I don't know how many people have been in debate. I've only been in like two. We had a very small school. So um, the kid that never loses an argument is Joseph. I can just picture like everyone that's trying to talk after him is like sweating bullets on. Um, and you see, um, uh, crap. Uh, uh, can you say what your point was again? Uh, I kind of, oh, uh, you just like, sir, I had a whole, my list of paper now has holes in all of these arguments I had. You have destroyed them all. After a couple moments, Joseph just lets the room sit for a little bit. And he pairs it with, now he just said that he loved his country. Notice, his country. Not only is he playing the legal, like the, the argument of emotional, but like he's playing to patriotism because everyone in the room can talk about how much they love their country. Right. <laughs> Joseph paired that emotional argument with a legal one when he said, quote, the right to the land was ours before the whites came among us. White men have set, have set this authority aside. These rights 
were the foundation of any lasting peace between the Indians and whites trading among them. Joseph then said that this thought should fill you with fear. Now, he didn't say that in a way that meant to be threatening. But what he just said is we were living peaceably. People moved on to our land and disrupted that peace. If you're going to allow that, this should terrify you because what's stopping them from taking your land? Right. Then, in case this verbal beatdown wasn't bad mm-hmm. enough, Joseph brings up the idea of legal precedent, saying that the law has eyes and that situation had to have happened before. Somebody just basically needs to look it up. The plea, however, kind of fell on deaf ears as now they just start moving past the point and they're like, yeah, but how about moving on the reservation? Huh? Doesn't that sound fun? Never mind, like ignoring that they're getting just gut punched by Joseph (laughs) at every moment. They have to move on to another point. Over the next couple of days, the agents said that the world Joseph was trying to describe no longer existed, that they would needed to move. Howard himself told Joseph that the valley was now open for settlement, and it was now Joseph's job to now move on the reservation and to, quote, find himself a good home. And then there was a little bit of silence. And you get the sense that Joseph was just either using it for dramatic pause or trying to think of what he was going for to say next. What he did say surprised the hell out of everyone. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's essentially he said, uh, said, well, where on the reservation would you like us to set up? In which case, everyone was like, what? Wait, 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 what? You said what? Oh my God, guys, it's happening. It's happening. (laughs) The energy from Howard and the other agents obviously completely flipped. Howard suggested, uh, suggested somewhere on the banks of the Clearwater River, but he would default to Joseph's opinion on where to set up. The other agents then told Joseph of all of the benefits that the United States could give them, which Joseph had probably heard, I don't know, two or three hundred times by this point. He'd been talking about this for a while. And that's what Joseph was waiting for. He was waiting for them to say the benefits of the United States government. And Joseph went off. And he said, quote, when did I ever ask anything from the government that you should speak to me in that way? The way you have spoken is not the way my heart has been on the subject of the lands. I see the whites all over the country gaining wealth and see their desire to give those lands that are worthless. Do you think me a man with neither eyes nor ears? Despite the powerful statement, Howard and the agents are trying to get him back on subject where he said, yes, you would move, you'll, you'll move on to the land. Where, 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 again, they asked, where would you like to go? And Joseph responded, I see no place but the Wallala Valley. It is my home. 
Now, let me just paraphrase the reaction of Howard and the agents. (laughs) I'm sorry. What? We were so close. We thought we had him. He was all doing it for for Khan. You get the well, feeling this is like, point. like crossed his arms and put like one shoulder slightly up and had that cool kid like pose like. I don't know what the equivalent of a mic drop is, but he just did it. After the commissioner stopped metaphorically crying, the commission then asked Joseph, quote, haven't you a stronger affection for peace than you have for all the land? What should we tell President Grant when we go back? If you say that you can only stay in the Wallala Valley, what do you want us to tell our boss? And I feel like they were half joking and half like, no, seriously, what would you like us to do? <laughs> I mean, you, you're out. great with words like, please let us know. <laughs> So he's like, could you work on my resume? Because I may need a new job after this. (laughs) So upon Joseph's reply to the question, what do you want us to tell President Grant when we go back? Joseph just said one sentence, and that was to tell President Grant that all I have to say is I love my country. Again, <laughs> Howard, probably the only man who was brave enough to speak at this point, then asked, Suppose several thousand men show up to Oregon with arms. What would you do? Just a hint of a threat there. You get the sense they're getting a bit frustrated up there on the council for the on the American side. <clears throat> Joseph's reply called back to the murdered Nez Perce hunter. You remember the one with the skittish rancher that was killed on Nez Perce land and they he was tried in, you know, not the Nez Perce land way. He said that the incident with the rancher had caused him to feel darkness in his heart. Yet he was still able to decide that he would not take the murderous life back for the one the rancher took. We had already been peaceful. You brought the violence here. This is the problem has not been us. Joseph continued. I spoke with the murderer and told him that I thought a great deal of the land in which you had shed the blood of one of my people. I see you. You see one of our bodies lying dead. I am not talking idly to you. I cannot leave the country and let that go elsewhere. Now, what he is saying, what he is summing up is I have, you killed this per someone of my band. He now lives here permanently he's dead but my ancestors are here that person is here we are abandoning them if we leave this land more of these conversations happen over the course of a couple days well now the commissioners are starting to flirt with the idea that joseph and his band should be allowed to stay in the walala valley when asked 
why you want to stay or when they asked, if we give you the Wallala Valley, will you stay there? If we give you what you want, will you agree to stay on the reservation? Joseph replied, when you were born, you looked around and found that you lived in houses. You grew up to be large men. At any time you wished to go to another point, you went. After making such a journey, perhaps you will come back to a father. I grew up the same way. A.K.A. Nah, bruh. No, we will. You will not basically put us under house arrest. We want to leave as well. Duh. Now, I just, I, I've probably quoted this man more than anyone I've quoted since. Because if, if you can't tell, he's real good. He's got, got a thing with words. But to me, the most impressive part of Joseph arguing with this uh, commission is that he they're all flirting with the elephant in the room. Joseph is claiming to be an equal, and the commission can't exactly say they're not. But Joseph is almost daring them to say, what is so different about us that you're allowing white settlers, American settlers and immigrants onto our land, but we cannot defend ourselves. And they can do whatever they want. And they can do what we want. If they murder one of us, they still are on, they will still be brought to your laws. But if one of us does the same, we were still expected to hand them over to your laws. He doesn't confront it, but it is definitely like over the shoulders the entire time, and he's smart enough not to bring it up, and I think that is the coolest dang thing ever. <laughs> a few more days pass by. Joseph, you feel like, never breaks a sweat. Oliver Otis Howard has that vein pulsing out of his forehead by now because he's here to redeem his career, and Joseph is making it very, very hard. <laughs> So frustrated, Howard replies in a way where he basically is throwing his resume at Joseph. And he says, quote, I have been here in command of this department for two years, and I have, I have been called the friend of the Indian. I said, I was sent 20 years ago to the Seminoles. They are now an Indian country doing well. I have sent back to the Apaches to make peace with them. One band handed Ben in war for 12 years. I made peace with them. He then continued. I'm not kidding. He continued for like another minute, but I'm splicing up this quote. He then continued. The only place of trouble have been the Luwala Valley. I read this report that recommended a commission. I go to Washington and get the commission. The president said we, we are allowed. And here it is. We ask you that if you stay here, if it is given to you, you say you want to go where you please. If you don't want, if you do want the valley now, it is time to take the offer made you. Howard's done. 
you get the sense like he just said, don't you know I'm the one in charge, which is never a good thing. <laughs> if you have to remind someone you're in charge, you're not doing a great job of it, let alone if you have to list all of the things you have done to accomplish to get to this point. Yeah. The only thing Joseph had to say to that, he said, quote, why do you persist talking about it? You know my mind. Still not backing down. It's like he just was like, yeah, I don't care what you say. Just like, dude. I'm always going to come back with something better. <laughs> After weeks of conversation, there are times. So to sum up this entire meeting, it looked like for a brief moment that the Americans were going to get the deal with Joseph, but it's, it's just kind of a standstill. The meeting breaks with no resolution. Howard, who was so afraid of getting ridiculed in newspapers again. Well, guess what? He's now getting ridiculed in, in newspapers again because he failed to make a deal, and he failed to forcibly put the Nez Perce on a reservation. For the Nez Perce, though, they were Joseph returned to his tribe under a clout of uncertainty, and for a couple of months, they learn that Howard has a new commission that now favored forced movement onto the reservation. We saw during Little Bighorn how well the Lakota and the other Sioux responded to forced removal to the reservation. Joseph and his people were still not planning on leaving, and they were just going to wait to make something happen. Other than the weight of his people, uh, other than the weight of this people's future, Joseph's family was about to grow. He already had a 12-year-old daughter, approximately 12 years old, and his wife would soon be giving birth, like within the next couple of months after the conference. It is now the spring of 1877. While Joseph is tending to that, his brother Olicott, again the war chief, kind of takes a step up for the tribe while Joseph is getting his family uh, together. Olicott writes to Indian agents and is remarkably honest in his letters to the agents, saying that they don't want to fight because if they did fight, they would be fleeing into the mountains and leaving the land that they loved anyway. So there's no end game. They would just like to stay here. And could you just keep people off of the land? That's all we want. That would be great. When Olicott leaves to meet with the American with American officials, he is told basically the answer is no, that <laughs> they are forced to move on the reservations. We are done talking. Frustrated, Olicott splits his fingers in two, kind of like the rock on symbol is what I'm picturing it. But what he's really signifying is that the Americans are speaking with a forked tongue as a snake. Ooh. He accused Howard and the Americans that they did not speak straight, 
a couple months ago, you talked that there was a chance, there was a way for us to stay on our land. And now you're telling us there is no way. Now, what Alcott probably wouldn't have understood is that Congress was Congress and Grant were this was the decision after Little Bighorn. Order must happen. Forced removal must happen now. Alcott likely. Well, maybe I should give him more credit than that. I do. I guess I'm not entirely sure how much he understood. Um, Howard was in control. Howard, at the core of him, is a soldier. He was a Civil War general. He lost his arm in battle. He is very dedicated to the army. He is given orders. Now he will follow it. The order is move them all to the reservation. By any means necessary? Move them onto the reservation. Right. And Howard's reply to Olicott is is basically saying those same things. Again, we are coming soon and you will be moved to the Lapai Reservation. Howard then invites Olicott the chance to help and make the move easy. But you're going to plan to move. The plan is not for you to stay. Joseph and the other non-treaty natives, including his, his brother Olicott, another chief named Whitebird, and a chief, I'm going to be mean to you again, Matt. <laughs> Inside the chat is another name. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and give that one a shot. Tuhuluzote. Again, really good. I'm going to have you start saying these names because I <laughs> suck at them. Tulahuzota. Oh, okay. For those who uh, were wondering, it is spelled. T O O H O O L O L L O O L Z O T E Tula Huzota, who is a well respected elder chief. They want one final meeting with Howard. And Howard showed, but made it clear that there would be no compromises and no authority to which Joseph could turn, saying, quote, You may. You may as well know now at the offset that in the event, the Indians must obey the orders of the government of the United States. And if they will not come on their own, they will be escorted by the military. Despite their pleas, Howard wouldn't budge. When Tula Huzote and Howard start having a heated argument, Howard has him arrested. And when jailed, he then focused with Joseph, Whitebird, and Olicott, who reluctantly agreed to settle on the hills of the Clearwater. Finally, they have agreed to move. They would be moving near a chief named Looking Glass, who will become more important next episode. The land they pick is only a hundred is a, is the farthest away from the Lapwai Reservation, but it's also the closest to the Wallala Valley. So it's this nice middle ground. But they're on the reservation, but just barely. And their neighbor is Looking Glass. Howard then says the Nez Perce have thirty days. I believe. There's been three deadlines like this that we've talked about. The Apache had a similar deadline, and the Sioux 
had a similar deadline. You must be on here by X date or you will be considered hostile is essentially the message. When Joseph brought up that it would be next to impossible to move 750 people over 100 miles in 30 days, Howard basically said, tough. Keep in mind, the 750 people, these aren't all warriors and young men, elderly, sickly, children, horses, livestock, housing. 30 days, 100 miles, 750 of you. Chop, chop. Time to go. But somehow, they do it. Barely. It is the spring of 1877. The winter runoff is wreaking havoc with the rivers. Multiple cows and cattle drown just crossing the river but they make it. But as soon as they settle, a member of Joseph's band named Two Moons brought the worst possible news he could. The previous day, three young warriors from another band had left and returned with horses they had stolen from white men. And to make it worse, those warriors had killed the white men. Now, the backstory on it is from Whitebird's tribe. He was just in the conference we talked about. Whitebird's tribe held a ceremony to discuss. It was a ceremony to celebrate previous battles. And during this ceremony, a young warrior whose father was murdered about three or four years before where we're currently at. By a, by a scared white man? No. Well, yes, he, the, his father was killed by a scared white man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but during the ceremony, the warrior is made fun of or criticized by another warrior for not avenging his father's death. Now, where that's not fair, literally, as the father is dying, he is telling his son, do not, do not avenge, avenge my death. Of course. If you so he listened to his father, but it's coming basically at the price of his uh, reputation in the tribe. After the ceremony, that same warrior cries openly for a while. He then paints his face. He then grabs three others and they sent out and they go out to avenge the death of his father. They are going no! to find that settler and kill him. However, when they reach the cabin, the settler isn't home. <gasps> Don't tell me his wife and kids are. So instead, they find a neighbor. And they killed, who was also guilty of, of basically, I don't know, I'm unclear if he killed a native before or killed a nest person before, or if he was just uh, very nasty to them, like sick their dogs on him when they came close type nasty. They kill that soldier or they kill that rancher basically in his sleep. It was very easy. One shot to the head. He's dead, but they didn't stop there because his wife and his children were also killed. Dang. Then on the way back, 
Not only do they steal that rancher's horses, they find a man in the middle of the road and attempt to murder him, but only wound him pretty severely. Which, you guessed it, there's now a witness. Yeah. Upon hearing this, Chief Looking at Glass, so again, the neighbor of the new the Joseph Span that is moving in, hears this news and they instantly flee because war is on. There's yep. no I'm out of here. See ya. Yes. Chief Whitebird and Tula Hozota's people are preparing to flee as well. Joseph and Alicott hear the news and they try to keep their people where they are. Now, for Joseph, you got to think he has full confidence in himself that if they stay here, he can he can debate his way out of the situation and deflect the blame and his people will be fine. However, those in the tribe, they're starting to split because as, as inspirational as Joseph is to us. It's not like everyone in the tribe felt the way Joseph right. did. So trying to keep his tribe together and risk of splitting, Joseph very reluctantly agrees to flee, but they're not ready yet. After all, they just traveled a hundred miles. <laughs> they just traveled. They just crossed a river that just killed their cattle because the, the it was high because of melt off from the winter. Right. At night, and also personally for Joseph, his wife gave birth. He now has an infant daughter to take care of, along with a 12-year-old daughter to take care of. Joseph does not want to go anywhere. But over the next couple of days, they hear a skirmish to the outside of camp. And I mean close skirmishes. Some not necessarily with the army but ranchers coming for revenge. They get so close that Joseph's Joseph will waken up in the middle of the night because a rifle shell came through his tent. Close. And now Howard is sending in the troops. Joseph and his band of old men, women, children, sick, are not exactly fleet of foot, but they make the decision that they need to cross the river again and start fleeing. And that is where we're going to leave it today. We got to run. Dun, 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 dun. I can just see uh, them. You know what? You know what? I can just see someone go, fly, you fools like Lord of the Rings. You know, they cross the river and then that's how the first movie ends. Stay tuned for part two. Thoughts on Joseph so far? He doesn't fight a lot. I'm not typical. I'm not used to uh, you know uh, Native Americans not uh, just. You're not used to verbal war. Beating? Yeah, <laughs> I like it though. It's funny because I guarantee the those white guys were freaking sweaty or just like really frustrated, <laughs> like. Because the best part is they probably didn't even see it coming. So it's even better. They're like, wait, what? What? I do like during those conferences, like you do get the sense they were taken off guard. But the second conference, like Howard isn't even acknowledging like, nope, you're coming. We're not debating. 
We're definitely not debating. You're coming with us. We're not going to sit here all day listening to you again. Nope. Nope. (laughs) It's never going to happen. Please leave. La, 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 la. It's just funny, like, because everything they say, he has a rebuttal, you know? And a really good one. Mm -hmm. Not just like a okay comeback. It is mic drop after mic drop. And I love it. I aspire to be that good with words one day that I can just basically say this very short. He is like, like the, um, the stereotypical, like chief, as we picture him, like native wisdom, like he can just say something in very few words and is profound. And he has that. And it's awesome. Legitimately like him so far, like him so far. Who knows what's going to happen in the second part? I will say most of the next episode will take course in less than a year. Because I feel like uh, I felt the same way about Geronimo, and then all of a sudden he starts killing everyone. Or was that? No, yeah, that was Geronimo. It was Geronimo. So, hey, I'm not, I'm not saying anything too quickly. Just know again, he gives me he gives me the Tecumseh feels, and I don't just send that, that out. is insane. You've talked about Tecumseh for so long. He is still favorite. He's still my history crush. You will like because you're combining the wordsmith with the badassery, and then you have the martyrdom. And you know, we have an episode over this. If you haven't seen the Tecumseh episode, go <laughs> watch me crush all over him there. <laughs> and then was cooler. His brother's name was. I will never. Don't tell me. Uh, It was the prophet. um, Tenskatawa. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. The one eyed bandit. (laughs) No. However, can you imagine if Chief Joseph and Tecumseh were brothers? And you'd have been way better. Oh, my God. Because you would have, because you wouldn't have Tenskatawa saying, go attack Harrison. You're immune from bullets. You would have to saying, <laughs> let's just get out of here because I don't know. The real fighter will come. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm very, very impressed with him. <laughs> I hope. I mean, I, I'm not kidding you. I probably rewrote this episode at least twice, maybe three times. I've been kind of dreading putting this one out because I didn't feel like I had a true understanding of what happened. But I feel like I turned that corner and I'm very excited to see how this turns out. So, yeah. Episode one. I will not. This will likely be a two-part episode. However, I am not going to handicap to be a two-part episode. (laughs) So with that, I think I think it's time to say goodbye. Bye. Matt, do you need to I think I think you need to play the end music? Matt, hello. Am I the only one here?